0: What's up, everybody? It's episode 259 of Top Rope Nation. I am Ryan Drosti as always. I don't have Kyle. I don't have Justin here with me. But I do have a very special guest who we will be welcoming momentarily. Brand new book, just hit the shelves. Mr. Stephen Bell, he wrote it on the British Bulldogs. Tom Billington, the dynamite kid, and of course, the British Bulldog, Davey Boy Smith. We had a great about one hour discussion on the process of writing the book itself, his research, uh, the different Hart family members that got involved, Tom Billington's family members who got involved, and just overall the process in writing the book, how it turned out, and a great discussion on classic wrestling, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. I think you're all really going to enjoy this. As always, if you do, please be so kind as to hit that subscribe button down below here on YouTube, or if you're listening on the podcast feeds, hit subscribe, rate, and review as well. So without any further ado, let's take you to my discussion with Mr. Stephen Bell talking the British Bulldogs. We are here with a very special interview this week on Top Rope Nation. We are joined by Mr. Stephen Bell, author of Dynamite and Davey, The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. It's kind of the hot new book right now in the wrestling world. Just dropped July 1st. I just finished my copy. It is an excellent read. Outstanding reviews that I'm seeing across social media on Amazon.com. We're going to talk about it here. We're going to talk about the process of writing the book the research and of course both Davey boy and the dynamite kid as well so Mr. Bell Stephen how are you doing today
1: great thank you thanks for having us Ryan finally we uh, this is sort of take two in a day I forgot that we uh, I forgot it on my brother's wedding on the previous day
0: (laughs) that's right yeah we've been planning this interview for a few weeks so I'm glad we got to get it together Uh, I'm just getting over a cold so from our usual listeners they might tell I, I sound a little bit raspy, but I think I'm going to make it because I've been looking forward to this one for a very, very long time. Um, Steven, one of the things we like to do when we get someone on Top Rope Nation for the very first time is to just kind of acclimate yourselves to our listeners. So they kind of know, you know who they're listening to here on the pod, what their background is as a professional wrestling fan so i just want you to again introduce yourself in regards to how you grew up as a wrestling fan you kind of cover this at the start of the book um, but for the benefit of those who are listening right now and and they haven't read it yet when did you get into wrestling and then how did your fandom evolve
1: yeah well uh, forgive me if i go on a bit longer because it will probably mean that i automatically straight into how i can uh, about to uh, write about Dynamite and Davy um and the Bulldogs. And that's because um I think a lot of my generation, especially here in the UK, you've probably heard of the sort of Sky TV generation, which fell perfectly in line with the golden generation. Um here in the UK, uh, British wrestling was effectively sold down the river and um was a non-entity, or it was, you know, in real, real small venues, not on TV, no syndication at all whatsoever. Um that was sort of in the early nineties as the, the big golden generation boom of the WWF was going on and Sky TV, um, syndicated and bought, um, rights for the UK to show WWF programming. So us, as me and all my, uh, generation as eight, nine, 10 year olds around that time, just fell in love with wrestling. Absolutely loved it. It was one of the only things we talked about, uh, reacting in the playground. Don't do it at home kids. Uh, but, um, yeah, so D- Davey was obviously a huge hero of ours at that point. The Union Jack obviously really rammed down his throat, loved it, couldn't get enough of Davey. Uh, and then I think as most uh, kids of our generation did, as we got a little bit older, we thought we were a little bit cool for wrestling uh, at that point. And the WWF, as we all know, at that point in the mid-90s was on a bit of a slump. But then a few years later, again, as we, our teenage years, our later teenage years, it was the Attitude Era, which, it weird how we'd then become Vince McMahon's target demographic for the second time in the space of a decade almost. Um, so we all got back into it again, absolutely loved it again. It was the coolest thing on TV. What else did, you know, 16, 17-year-old lads want? Um, and it's weird how Davey... Um, Davy Davey and The Undertaker were the only two at that time who sort of transcended them two generations. And uh, and by that point, as I got older, I'd come to appreciate the fact that it were really local to me from a, a small mining town, extremely similar to mine. Uh, they're all very similar, these mining towns. Everybody's really humble, uh, very same sort of people. So I, I sort of appreciated a shared heritage that I had with Davey at that point and... Um, Admired him even more because I knew what sort of humble beginnings he'd come from to then be this larger than life character alongside Hulk Hogan and the Undertaker and people like that. So, uh, found that absolutely fascinating. Even more so, made um, my brother were, got so much into it that we were desperate to find out. Everything that had happened in between and before, so um, we set about getting a friend of ours who curated a massive collection of uh, the old VHS tapes, going all the way back to WrestleMania One, and we worked his way through them. Also, as we got to WrestleMania Two on, you know, night two, there are the British Bulldogs, plural. And that the first time I ever was introduced to. The Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington. Now, all I thought at that point, because Dave is still in my young mind, Dave was the star, he was the British Bulldog, and these were the British Bulldogs. So I, I assumed that, you know, they just sort of got somebody to tag team with Davey, some some English guy, some British guy. Um, and it was only when I started reading and getting into it more and more behind-the-scenes stuff as as all the books started coming out, particularly Mick Foley's book. Uh, Tom isn't mentioning it much, but what he is, Mick puts him over so much as at that time in the mid eighties, 86 time, uh, probably the best wrestler in the world. That sort of piqued me attention. So this is still 20 years ago now. Um, and I thought, well, I want to know more about him now. And then when I found out that there were first cousins, so we were also from the mining town, also shared that heritage first cousins. I had no idea about that. As I found out that I was absolutely fascinated with this story. And I said, that's going back 20 years. Um, read more and more books. I've read Brett's book, read Tom's book. um Sort of started absorbing everything that I could about behind-the-scenes type stuff. Um Did a lot of research on the uh, British wrestling background. And so then when, years later, I'd, 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 had, I'd had two successful sports books already and my publisher offered me a chance to do another one and my second one ends... Uh, well, the, the final third of my second book is... uh pro wrestling themed and it almost transcends into um, the snake pit and uh, the evolution of uh, pro wrestling in the north of England where we're from around the mining times and how that all started and it just felt like kismet it felt like serendipity that the publisher wanted me to do a third book I'd had this idea well, I didn't even know an idea at the time 20 years before and I'd already sort of uh started that research all over again for the end of my previous book and it just felt like uh destiny almost at that point so i said yeah i want to do with the bulldogs and and they backed me all the way
0: that's awesome i think our experiences were very similar we must be about the same age so i'm 38
1: I'm
0: and, okay so there we go because yeah because i can like faintly remember seeing the bulldogs you know when i was very young at uh you know the very early stages of my fandom, you know, and seeing them come out with Matilda and stuff. But yeah, mostly growing up, it was like the British Bulldog to me singular yeah. too. And I didn't know a ton about Tom Billington until later on. And and you mentioned you know being a younger fan and that kind of the end of that golden period, and then they draw us back with the Attitude Era. It's it's really unique because there's so many people about our age who are you know very hardcore into wrestling because we live kind of through two boom periods yeah at you know the perfect ages i would say as a young kid and then like as a teenager
1: yeah we right. were that perfect demographic at that time and i think that's why uh, there is such a hunger and a thirst for um you know all the all the podcast series that are, that are out at about a minute most of them are themed around them eras because mm-hmm. it was such a boom period and there was there's so many uh interesting topics to talk about interesting people the 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 for, for good or bad, the stories are fascinating around that time and you know despite what's going on now it's uh it's in it's a lot obviously it's a lot cleaner industry it's a lot more regulated industry a lot better for the people involved um to be involved not not as dangerous an industry but I don't think in thirty years time there's going to be fifty award-winning podcasts around what we're going off around <laughs> this time. So it's like a right. catch 22, you know, that they're never going to quite capture that magic in a bottle that they did back then because they've learned the lessons from it. But we were around to appreciate it at the time, I think.
0: A hundred percent agree. Um, you kind of mentioned this a little bit with like the er- Northern England and, and the mining towns and stuff. And you tell that story in in the book, you know, the area of England that Tom Billington was from and and how that kind of drew you in as a fan. And as an American, I didn't really understand the dynamics, you know, of the geography of your country and the types of people that emanate from each region and everything. So, I mean, for the Americans listening, and we do have a strong listenership over where you're at, about 15 to 20% of our listeners are from yeah. the UK. So shout out over there. But for the Americans listening and, and all around the world, um, explain a little further about where Tom and of course his coven, da- cousin Davy Boy Smith came from and how that upbringing and being from that area of England impacted their journey to the ring.
1: Yeah. So there's a real North South divide, uh, in the UK. Um, so the South of England, obviously London and where all everything to do with Westminster, everything like that goes on. It's, it's a lot more affluent. There's a lot more money flying around, around there, a lot more jobs, a lot more opportunities. Um, you know, and where I'm from, particularly back then, um, the the jobs for men, you know, and and they were it it was really an alpha male dominated communities. You know, the the men were the breadwinners, and there wasn't many. Different types of jobs that they could get upon leaving school. None, none of them were going to be going to university, or, or very few, very few were going to be going to university. They're not going to be getting jobs as doctors or lawyers. So, but there was a thriving mining industry, and they are the we are the mining towns uh, as they are all known. So, the, the first part of call for most um, boys of working class families would be. At what age are you going to start going down the mine? You know that's what it was. And what are you going to be? Are you going to be an electrician? Are you going to be a, a mechanic? Are you just going to be a shift labourer? And you know that that's all it was. And then Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government in the 70s, in the eighties, predominantly um, shut down the mine, shut down the mines because you know it was more economic to get that uh, industry. Shipped in rather than mine it yourselves so the heart was ripped out of them communities uh, what was previously a bordering on the poverty sort of stricken level but everybody was okay everybody was your know, food on the table and then that got taken away and everybody was plunged into poverty for a period of time uh before a bit of a leveling up campaign across the country brought us up to speed and now a lot of us do go to university and, and and move on to that but it were really hard times for these people and there wasn't many options apart from going down the mines and that had an impact on everything even down to um the average age of death you know because there was accidents down the mines uh, they were coming out of there hard of hearing broken backs broken down men uh, because it was such hard labor um but sport was one other realistic option we have uh, the sport of rugby league is pretty much only in the mining towns and that's the reason that uh, was because that's what they were they would come out of the mines and they would wrestle and grapple with each other um and then so at the more affluent sport of rugby as a whole even that was forced to fast into the divide so it got the north of england almost got its own sport uh, that was for these miners but wrestling evolved out of that in the, in the twenties and the thirties, catch us, catch can wrestling p- predominantly in Wigan, uh, became such a thriving product and a realistic option, uh, as that became pro wrestling. Um, and then TV companies got involved. And when the TV companies got involved, the North of England had this wealth of talent, um, that were born out of just ordinary working class men or boys who, who were, excellent at pro wrestling because it's what they've been brought up doing or rugby league or soccer you know and 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 so when there was when they needed talent for the pro wrestling to fill the rosters um suddenly there was a a realistic option of further employment in that uh, for these lads from the mining towns that wasn't there before so lots of them jumped at that chance um That led to gyms opening up in and around that Wigan and Warrington area. One of them was the World Round Snake Pit and another one was Ted Betley's gym. And one uh, fateful day, Ted Betley met a 13-year-old Tom Billington and that's where the story begins.
0: And it is quite the story. It's like I said, it's an excellent read. You go very in depth in Tom's early days in England and what he experienced at the gym and, you know, being kind of an undersized guy. And that was, you know, something that played into his psyche, as we all know, throughout his entire career As you know, he was a smaller guy with five foot eight or so, and he had to pack on the muscles, you know, any way he could, especially when he got to Calgary. And, um, that's what he did. So, you mentioned you, you you had the idea for this book, of course, you know, growing up a fan and then you had already written two books for your publisher and got the chance to do a third one. So as you began the process of writing this book, what was it like? I mean, what, what was your process like in researching for the book? Uh, what kinds of resources did you have at your disposal? How did that go for you? Well.
1: One thing that so it's obviously I mean I'm from the UK as we've discussed at length, but I mean I've got a UK publisher as well. And what I noticed was because I was um watching, reading, listening to as much as I possibly could about pro wrestling from that era, predominantly anything that was uh that focused on Dynamite and Davey as well, and I'd been for some years really. Um and all virtually all of them publications were uh, American or Canadian based just because of what they were be it Mick Foley's book or Brett's book or um, and then obviously there's been a dark side of the ring and I didn't feel like this story had ever been truly told to a British audience and these were two of our finest sporting ex- uh, exports as far as I'm concerned especially two of our local lads uh, from the north of England so uh, I really felt like there was a story to tell even if that was if i'd have done the the best i possibly could with just everything that i had at my disposal so that's all the books that have been written i mean virtually every member of the app family has written a book for so that would have been a good place to start uh, i quickly got myself a couple of uh british wrestling historians to help me out with facts and figs and dates um so that that just added some meat on the bones sure I to get it all in a perfect chronological order but i thought well this is this could be good just at that, and then I will obviously really try. So I wanted to I satisfy myself that there was a story to tell and a book to write for a UK audience, um, even if I didn't manage to speak to any family members at that time because it, you're in a, a catch-22 situation with that because families in that scenario, before they give you any kind of green light or uh, waste any of the time on you, You've got to prove yourself to them, and you've got to break down that barrier and break down that door and gain their trust. And um, to do that can be difficult. So I had to I had to satisfy my publisher on one side that there was a book to be delivered no matter what, and that could give them a date and a deadline and some you know projections of what I thought it might do and target demographics. But on the other side, I really wanted to make it as big and uh, new and fresh as I possibly could, and I knew I wanted family members involved for that and other wrestlers and um so I set, I set myself sort of a minimum and a maximum sort of project of what it could be once i'd got that and i'd got sort of a covered bit of a cover designed um a word count in mind, all, all this all these ideas some real meat on the bones i felt like i were in a position to go to family members uh, and prove you know I, I told them about introduced myself told them my history my two previous books um the success that they'd had and here I is, you know, like a, what I've got in mind for this. Uh, and I still found it difficult. Now the first um, barrier that I broke down was I managed to get in touch with Bruce Hart. Bruce Hart had such a key part of the story. You know, he discovered dynamite. Uh, I mean, that's a wonderful story in itself. How he discovered dynamite and enticed him over to Canada as a young boy. Um, and so I, I had a sort of three or four hour chat with um, Bruce. That went excellently and um, really enjoyed getting his take on things. As I said, I'd already read his book, but I watched a little bit of new content from him, a little bit of clarification on things. We talked for hours, just generally about British rest, wrestling from his time over there. It's such a great memory of people that had man So we just talked for hours. Um, and I'd obviously made a good impression. Without realising it, I'd made a good impression. Um, so then... Ross, I got in touch with me and said, uh, "I spoke to my brother Bruce. He was quite impressed. Uh, I'd like to contribute as well if I can. Absolutely right. It was we're rolling now. Uh, same again with Ross. Had a four-hour conversation. Really um, hit it off with Ross again, to the point where we almost turned into pen pals about it. And I felt I felt like I could send him." long rafts of emails asking him questions and he would, he would get back to me with answering everything that he possibly could in great detail it took a lot of time uh, to make sure he got things right it would be open and a bit to me if he didn't know anything about it um, but then he, he did the same as what Bruce had done with him and he spread the word to other family members so that's how I got to speak to Bronwyn Billington and other people and and from there yeah I really built up sort of a, a small group family that I could turn to for anything and Bronwyn and Ross were particularly brilliant, uh, particularly helpful. And that's why I asked them to write the forward and the afterword respectively, just because they contributed so much. They um, put their heart and soul into it as well. And I really felt like their names deserved to be on the front cover alongside mine. Uh, Bronwyn in particular, afterward, I, I really wanted to end it on that note. And I knew what note I wanted to end it on. But um, after she told me the story, uh, I really felt like it, that story needed telling in her words rather than mine. So I asked her to tell that story as the sort of happiest ending that the book could possibly have. And yeah, it seems to have gone down really well.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, the the influence of Stampede, of course, on both guys' careers and the way you tell the story of, you know, Bruce coming over there. Stampede on its last legs, and him bringing Tom back, and that kind of giving rebirth to the territory again. I've, I mean, I've read Pain and Passion years ago, History of Stampede Wrestling. Of course, I've read Brett's book. I've read several books that cover Stampede Wrestling, but there was stories in your book that I don't believe I've heard before, and your the way that you tell the story in the book. It's almost like I feel like the best nonfiction books can oftentimes read like a good fiction book in that like it draws you in with like the dialogue, the way you insert dialogue and stuff to tell the story makes it very um, engrossing to read. And it was it was truly a book like I couldn't put down. And that was my favorite section of the book was the Stampede portion, which probably makes well, I don't know a quarter of the book or so. I would say offhand, it's it's a it's a healthy yeah, chunk. Yeah, of I would the book. say so, yeah. I, say, so had- it, I mean, it was just because it had me like wanting to dig up the old footage constantly. Like, I wanted to <laughs> dig up footage of that match or that promo. And I, a lot of that I hadn't seen in years. So I, either I was, you know, pulling out Brett's original uh, DVD or wherever I could find uh, some of that or going on dailymotion.com because YouTube pulls a lot of stuff, you know, to, to try to find that footage. I mean, it, I, it would, the book to me was more than just reading the book, but then it was also just like, going out and searching out footage too and it became this whole thing of just reliving that era a little bit
1: yeah well um, just a little side note my dad is like almost completely anti-wrestling like you know always sort of scoffed at it as, as when we were watching it as kids and also as teenagers and but obviously he reads my books because in fact i always give him the first copy you know because i want him to he's always the first person i want to read my books um and even he has been watching footage of, of, of Dynamite in particular <laughs> because how much I've put Dynamite over it. He got so fascinated by what Dynamite could do and the ground that he broke uh, that even he's been uh, getting YouTube footage up and sort of <laughs> had his jaw to the floor watching it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. but Yeah, there was so, I had so much um, result. I found Stampede and the whole thing, uh, the whole relationship so fascinating. The fact that they got so ingrained there, you know, both of them only went over, supposed to go over for such a short period of time, ended up spending such a large portion of their lives there, set down family ties, uh, and it's where they are most indelibly linked to now, uh, and the links to the Art family and Stampede Wrestling, I found it so fascinating, and I had such a well through Ross, through Stamp, uh, through Pain and Passion you mentioned, Heath McCoy has become a friend of mine, because I, I reached out to Heath, uh, and he couldn't wait to read the book, and it's since admitted to me almost that he was, um, almost a little bit nervous to read it because he knew what an amazing story it could be, and he really wanted somebody to make a good job of it. And uh, he's just he's written the most amazing review of the book, a bit like similar similar themes to what you've just said. I think the style um, was something that I, I really, really desperately wanted to do and achieve because uh, I think it's it's such a dramatic tale and such a humanistic story that. Uh, I really wanted the reader to go on that roller coaster with with the guys. Um, I didn't want it to just be cause I, I had so many contradictory stories, you know you could get bogged down with quotes, you know, so-and-so said this in his book, but then so-and-so told me this in an interview and then so-and-so said this in a magazine once and in issue interviews. There's so many contradictory stories that I didn't want I, I wanted to write the book that I'd want to read. So uh, what I did, I, I took all that information together and threw it by amalgamating them all together, giving everybody a little voice within them, tried to amalgamate it into one scene and then another scene. So it flew and the reader really felt like they were, they were there and, and enthralled with it. And I, yeah, everything that I've got suggests that it works. Now, a little story as to why that style works so well for me and why I enjoy writing that so much is because... My second book, which is the, uh, it's called. I forgot what my own book's called now. Uh, the man of <laughs> all talent, the man of all talents, the extraordinary life of Douglas Clark. Now Douglas Clark was a, um, he was born in the late eighteen hundreds. He's from from my hometown. He went on to be an unbelievable war hero, like genuine, genuine war hero. Um, He's got his he's got uh, his own shrine at the War Museum. And but he was also one of the best ever rugby league players, a real pioneering rugby league player. Uh worked out, was a coal miner. Uh and then when he finally did hang up his rugby boots, uh, he turned to professional wrestling in 1930 and went on to be Britain's first ever world heavyweight champion. Now Kayfabe was so absolute in them days that I I could do. All kinds of research about his, and he'd actually written down um, his memoirs up to the point of professional wrestling, and then he just wrote nothing, because uh, <laughs> what could he write? you know? He, mm. he, so um, I, I split that up into three parts. Part one was his life as a rugby league player, part two was his war life, and part three was his professional wrestling career, which I had his stats on. The, his matches, who, where, when, who won, and I'd got some third-hand reports, newspaper reports, uh, chronicling the matches. But other than that, I had to be—I I had to sort of use that same style where I, I didn't have direct quotes from him, I didn't have direct quotes from anybody else who were there. I, I just so so I decided to write in that style that flew. I did. Then I went back and rewrote the bit. I, I loved it so much that I went back and rewrote the war section because I thought it had a lot more dramatic, dramatic, dramatic effect. <laughs> went back mm-hmm. and wrote the first section of the Rugby League. So that's, that book ended up being written in that same style. And I really felt like it, it it worked really well. And the reviews for that were so good that I thought, yeah, I'm going to stick to that. And I think any story that's got that sort of dramatic human side to it uh, can, really be, can really be written in that manner. And that's what the reader wants, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially like the car rides that you tell during yeah. the Stampede days. It's, I really like the ones, especially when Her- uh, Harley Race was up there. There's some great stories in the book around that time period.
1: Well, that one in particular you're talking about, uh that was one of my favorite bits, and that was because Tom tells a version of that story in his book. But so, so I done a a and version. you know, like, just sort of. I wanted to tell the story of how he met Ali Race because Ali Race was um, really key to Tom's development, I think. And you know, mm-hmm. while, uh, how he developed a lot of the mentality that he did. He um, respected him so much. I thought that was key. And the fact that he met him in that manner with that story. And Tom tells that story in his book, but that was the only account that I had of it. So I'd paraphrase that. Um, but then when Ross saw that, he went, That's wrong. He says, Where have you got that from? And I said, Tom's book, you were right. It says i have come across that version before and that must be where that rang a bell with rossi went breach wrong it says um because i think tom had written that it was be brett and he'd got some other facts wrong about it it went it was keith that it, were with. it went you need to speak to keith so ross put me in touch with keith and keith wrote me down that mm. story a long long story told me that it's that story you know even down to like what what it was that they were drinking and the fact wow. what, what alcohol volume it was, which is why they were so worried about Harley driving and why it led to that that incident and i thought wow this is gold absolute <laughs> gold so i wrote it in my style as i would and, and sent it back to keith and he, he just gave me a thumbs up and says yeah you've got it in one there so uh yeah that that was a, that that's like a typical example of how um a lot of the stories came to light and uh and yeah I just kept, I felt like it got to a point where I felt like it was snowballing so well, one thing will lead into another, um, and it ended up being, as I said earlier, I'd got this version of events where one would be, i just almost paraphrase what other people have done and tell the story in my own way um, and put it out there for a UK audience who haven't had sort of full access to it before. The utopia being everybody's on board everybody tells me a story and at that point it felt like i was a lot closer to that one now mm-hmm. and, and that's where i feel i ended up it, there's there's other people that i'd love to be involved who weren't but um as i say that that would have been too perfect almost
0: yeah for the <laughs> listeners you got you got to read the book to get the full effect of this story but i just can i can hardly imagine being you know if you're driving in a car down the road there wouldn't have been much traffic at that night when this was happening but if you would have saw this happening on the side of the road i mean the gist of it is harley was drinking some high alcohol beer and they got to a point where that wasn't going to be so safe for this car ride and some violence happened and you got to read the book it's a great story <laughs> you really really yeah it's it one, my
1: fa- one of my favorite parts yeah
0: yeah so you know, talking about talking to the hearts and and tom's family and everything what would you say the timeline was when you started researching this book up to publication? How long did you work on this project?
1: Uh, well, it's interesting. A lot of people ask me that, and it, it, it's it's always difficult to put a time on it, especially with this one because uh, my research almost goes back twenty years, you know. But but mm-hmm. from from actually deciding and telling the publisher this is what I'm doing next, this is where I'm going. Um, and sort of working on a title and starting to put it all into a logical time frame getting all my sources together um up to submitting the book it was about 18 months and then it was sort of another six months then of fine-tuning fine editing and leading up to release date so so yeah it ended up being close to two years really
0: okay and was there as you were writing the book was there a particular era that you enjoyed researching and writing about the most whether that was you know, stampede or like the early training days in England or the WWF or Japan or the, the later years for Davies wrestling career. I mean, any, any particular time period that you enjoyed the most, could you pick out
1: a uh, time period? I would say in and around stampede, not just the stampede, but the stuff that was going on in and around there on the personal lives as well. But I think it more of a subject matter rather than a timeline. It was their relationship that I absolutely got enthralled with, you know, and the peaks and troughs, uh, where it started off, why it started off. That was something I found out because, um, in, in both Brett and Bruce's book, um, they intimate, but they don't say why dynamite was dead against David coming over in the first place. Um, they just say there had been some family issues or whatever there might have been. And it was always a bit cryptic. And I, I did find out or oh, I got a strong theory and what I, believe probably was the case uh told to me and that's that's how i write it in the book so i felt like that was a, a real sort of nugget for it that that was great that i'd got that in there because that was the start that the start of that um roller coaster ride because there was a feeling i think that tom resented david for getting into the business and following him into the business and riding on his coattails a little bit uh, but then that roller coaster ride starts when david truly does earn tom's respect after Tom's almost, almost tortured him a little bit and stretched him and made him, made him really earn his stripes. But once it does, they become this sort of loyal unit, go and take on the world together for years and, absolutely conquer the tag team wrestling world. I think that's what a wonderful story. And then ultimately, the the breakdown of the relationship starts again, both professionally and personally. Uh, and yeah, they end up. Uh, sort of mortal enemies almost again and I I really found that so fascinating and to to find out little nuggets of information I found out um, a lot more about the what a lot of your listeners will know but probably not to the detail that I researched and managed to find something out was the trademarking issue of the name Mm -hmm. that was a real bone of contention for Tom uh, a real sense of betrayal but but I did find out more about that and how it came about and it happened so organic and so... um, yeah, just almost unbelievable, really. How, how something what was such a simple, almost misunderstanding, mm-hmm. ended up being something that drove a wedge between them, and then another wedge, and then another wedge, and uh, and they ended up with the wall, never, never to speak to each other again. So yeah, there's quite a lot in there. I think that people know a little bit about their relationship and the ups and downs, but there's an awful lot in the book that'll explain why that happened. Yeah, absolutely uh, were there any
0: aspects of either man's career that you gained maybe an even greater appreciation for as a result of writing the book?
1: Um, yeah, I think Dave, I, th- I think particularly the Japan stuff, Davey is overshadowed by Tom. Uh, when you, mm-hmm. when you look at what Davey accomplished over there as well, it, it, it was phenomenal. It, it, one particular story that I really liked when I discovered it was him going over there, um, Against Tom's wishes to start with, and having his first match there. Um, under a mask, as White Tiger, that they've called him, and the crowd genuinely thought it were dynamite um, mm-hmm. because, of this, because of the style and the look um, at the time. They thought it was dynamite under a mask, uh, and he blew the crowd away. And yeah, I really, it, dynamite is so indelibly linked with Japan and the Bulldogs as a team are, but yeah, Dave, Dave is a real legend over there too. And there were, there were a lot of things like that. I think Dave, eh, Tom in the late 70s, sort of 79, is has been regarded as this, your best wrestler in the world sort of tag. When the Tiger match matches started, I think is when people think that. So around the 82, 83, 84 period is when people associate the best of the Dynamite kid, but you'll go back and watch some of their matches from 79 was one from Stampede against Fujinami when, um, it was almost unknown to the rest of the world, uh, New Japan and Stampede did a collaborative tour and Tom was obviously picked to be Fujinami's challenger yeah. and they absolutely tore the roof every night and that is what led to New Japan um, taking Tom and that's what led to them putting the faith in him to be uh, Sayama's opponent to really get the best out of Tiger Mask, um, mm-hmm. and that's where that all started. So yeah, it, it were endless really, with well, the the stuff, and re-watching some of the matches that I hadn't watched in years, like Davey at Stampede, at Calgary Stampede in your house. and um, Yeah, it, were, it, were it was a real joy, a real labour of love, uh, and digging deep on some of the things that I either already knew, but found out a lot more about, or revisited, or finding new stuff that was completely new to me. Uh, yeah, it was a true pleasure.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what the best wrestling books do. Is they serve as a gateway to you know pull out the stuff you haven't seen in years and years and years and kind of see it through new eyes. Like I was saying earlier, that's kind of what this book did for me. Whether it was yeah some of the the, ma- the matches against Tiger Mask in the early '80s or the Stampede stuff or even some of the tag matches from the WWF or or Japan, you know, whether that's New Japan or All Japan. I mean, this is yeah, it'll it'll get you pulling out the archives. It, it made me wish that. Some of this stuff was on Peacock or the WWE network for those of you overseas and was a little bit easier to access for sure. Um, but I, you know, there's other ways to see it and you can, you can
1: pull it up fairly easily. There so. is. I mean, Stampede did appear on the network for a little while, but then I think most of it's, most of it's been pulled off now. But yeah, that's just how yeah. I was, I was good when that disappeared because um it, it is such a treasure trove of, of memories that the stuff they were doing in Stampede around that time. Um, served to inspire so much of, of what we went on to see in the 90s and onwards um you know particularly as, as i describe describing the book the ladder match between brett and dynamite um mm-hmm. that almost it, that became the blueprint but people it, it went that far back in time that people almost forgot that that was the blueprint but it was the one that everybody built the ladder matches on from that point
0: yeah absolutely uh, i want to ask you something about these guys personality because So obviously, Tom Billington has been known for years and years to have been a guy that was uh, a little rough around the edges in the locker room, so to speak. I mean, he loved to prank people to like a rather mean level, uh, almost like a sadistic streak to him, whether it was putting laxatives in people's drinks or drugging people's drinks, you know, fights in the locker room. And, you know, as you tell the stories in the book, it really kind of comes across like Davy when he came over to Canada he was a pretty innocent kid. He was the younger cousin of Tom and then you know maybe a little naive and then Tom kind of corrupted him and like you know Davy boy too was known for doing mean stuff backstage. I mean lighting a guy's bed on fire in a hotel. You tell that story in the book. Mm-hmm. Um so I want to ask you how how innocent do you think Davy Boy really was? Do you think he was totally corrupted by Tom, and that's why he became that way, or do you think that that was kind of embedded in him too?
1: <laughs> well, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. But I tell I tell that series of stories. The whole point is that I think I, what I like to do with things like that is let the let the reader make up their own mind. I, I don't mm-hmm. end up using I don't end up using the word bully in it because I think that's almost. Um, it's almost like convicting him in a way, Tom. I'm talking about, uh, I think that word bully gets used a lot against him. And I understand why. Um, And I think from certain people's point of view, You'll never tell them that it wasn't that. But from other people's point of view, you'll never tell them that it was because they saw this side of him. I spoke to uh, Gary Ports, who was Scott McGee in the WWF um, at length, over the phone. And he it, it got really emotional down the phone talking about Tom. They had such a strong friendship. And he told me about when Tom had um, come to his aid after after Gary had had a stroke, a serious stroke, it ended his career. He were, he were only young, only in his late 20s, he had a serious stroke and Tom took him in. He went and, uh, he had nobody else. They were in Calgary at the time. No family or friends around him and Tom took him in, uh, almost n- nursed him back to health, and then Gary repaid that favour when Tom's when Tom broke his back and and they had this sort of mutual friendship of that nature for years and years and years and he would not, uh, he was a bad word against him and I understand that. Uh, so, uh, what I want to do by telling these stories was let the reader make up their own mind. This is what I believe happened. This is what I've been told happened. Uh, and it's up to you how where you put him. I didn't, I didn't want it to come across as any kind of hit job in any way, shape, or form because I, I genuinely don't think it comes across as that. It was never my intention. Uh, but I also don't want it to be a whitewashing. I don't want the reader to think, oh, he's, he's ignored that part of it. So all I wanted to do was tell uh, an honest account that tells the full story of these two boys from a local hometown and let people make up their own mind up with regards to Davy, What I think it was truly is I, I think the term has been said a lot that it was a follower rather than a leader. I think that's probably true. And I think at that time, Tom was his leader. It was his team mm-hmm. captain. Uh, he had, he'd been that blueprint for, for Davey for success from, from the same humble beginnings. And, I genuinely think he would have followed him into any kind of war at that point uh i think he worshipped him and yeah it will probably i would use the term a massive influence on him in and out of the ring
0: yeah yeah i think kind of like harley was on tom as you alluded to earlier you know like tom wanted to learn how to carry himself it was a whole different era back then you know you you didn't want to get trampled on by guys in the locker room. You wanted to prove you were a real tough guy. As we said, Tom was undersized. So that played into him behaving the way that he did too. And, you know, I mean, in some ways it was a means to survival. It was also a way they kept themselves sane on the road.
1: Yeah, and I think the the ultimate example of that, what you've said about Ali, is the is the, di- the the lineage of the diving head. But, you know, I think that mm-hmm. almost almost acts as a, as a marker, you, it went from Ali to Tom to Benoit. Yeah. And, and you literally could see one be influenced by the other, and then the other be influenced by the predecessor. And yeah, I think you're right. And I think David Davy could handle himself so well, but I think he was so, he, he, even, even in them times when he was a real prankster, he was still softly spoken and still polite. And I, I don't think he ever sort of lost that side of him. And then when, after they did have the split I really noticed that particularly it comes across from Mick Foley is Davey in the 90s was one of the most beloved guys in the locker room you know so mm-hmm. um and anytime it did come down to so you know the example of the 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 fight with the marines with Shawn Michaels you know Davey was the one who, that could have ended a lot worse if it wasn't for Davy, you know um, yeah so I think he, he was supremely loyal. He could really handle himself, uh, and yeah, people forget how young they were as well. God, everybody makes mistakes when they're a young man, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, okay. and, and and they these, they were still in the early twenties when they were when they were playing them pranks a lot of the time. And David forging his way. I think the other thing that gets overlooked is they were, they were both um, in a foreign land, you know, far from home, trying to. Um, be the alpha male that they'd seen from their fathers in these the, the type of towns that I know we grew up in. And it was dominated by the, the alpha male types and uh, Tom's dad in particular, he was a boxer and a tough guy. So yeah, I, c- I can see where it started and what path they went down and they, they didn't want to go to across that foreign land in the wrestling business of all businesses and look weak in any way. So that they made that stance. Tom made that stance first, and sort of David followed him into that stance. They weren't going to be, uh, they weren't going to, nobody were going to ride roughshod over them. And yeah, I think as things took over, be it substances or steroids or whatever, um, yeah, they overstepped the mark. But yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, clearly in the end, it, it, the story becomes a tragedy, and there's no way around that. You mentioned. Having Bronwyn write the afterward and trying to give it some positive spin there, you know, at the end. But ultimately, yeah, it is. It's a it's a great tragedy because you got these two guys who are so ultra talented, and and how it ended up with them. Um, now, if you could, I mean, this is a hypothetical, but if you look at Tom and Davy, and if you know they lived through this era where you had to have the body of a superhero, or they're on the road three hundred days a year. What do you think their careers could have been like if they? I don't know, we're 20, 25 years younger and they came of age, you know, more in the modern era in the 2000s. Like, what do you think their ceilings would have been as wrestlers?
1: It, it's weird because they, for Tom in particular, they created the ceiling, didn't they? So um, I think there would have been, as, as in ring performers, performers, they would have been awesome in any era. I, I do genuinely believe that. Um, as individuals, yeah, I think they just like to forge their own path that much. That I think conforming to what goes on now might have been difficult for them. Um, it, it's difficult to know. In ring, they would have still been as good as anybody around. I think the storytelling craft, which I think is what has been lost in today's uh, wrestling, I think that's the problem. It's just um, uh, high spot after high spot is all they seem to be going for, rather than the the drama of the the storytelling and i think that's what these guys grow up on i think they thrived on kayfabe still being um a thing that they wore as a badge of honor uh and so yeah i I think i think they would have struggled with the business i don't think they would have struggled with the in-ring work at all but i think they would have struggled with the landscape of the business if i'm honest
0: yeah let's talk about the in-ring work a little bit here so i think most of our listeners are about our age they're They're pretty familiar, but for people who aren't, or maybe they haven't watched that era in a long time, uh, let's start with them as a team. You know, after spending so much time looking at their careers here, what are like a handful of British Bulldogs matches that you would recommend to people to either see for the first time or to relive if they haven't watched in many years?
1: I think, first of all, as a tag team British Bulldogs, probably WrestleMania 2 is the one that you want to start with because it was a crowning moment. uh, They did steal the show. I think, you know, it was such a, a ambitious project it was WrestleMania two with the three locations. Uh, and the bulldogs were main event, main event in one of the locations. Uh, and I do think they stole the show, uh, with that match against Valentine mm-hmm. and beefcake. Um, it's a really unique ending, and Tom does a typical Tom thing when he doesn't need to do it because it goes, goes off camera, goes completely off pace uh, with that bump uh, to truly sell the the, the impact uh, for the finish. Again, Rex is back again on the on the <laughs> guardrail when he were were off camera. He had no need to do it. Uh, the next thing, while David Boy's collecting the belts, Tom's dripping with blood. You know, he's clearly bladed. You know, yeah. after the belt. after the bell, <laughs> you know, uh, just to say just to get that. Um, Effect that he, that he desperately wanted to make it the the best possible match and the best possible finish it could be. Uh, other than that, I think the best work is probably in Japan as a tag team. Uh, the matches against the likes of the Malinkos, it's it's just a clinical masterclass the whole way through. But you can see them against so many different types of people. You know, I mean they had a they had a brief feud with uh, Big John Studd and King Kong Bundy in the WWF. You know, to big oversized lumps and they even managed to get some great matches out of them but then you can go all the way to as i say the likes of the malinkos uh, where they're putting on these these technical masterclasses and then there's you know, the likes against the funks uh yeah any from that new uh the, the japanese mid-80s era i think is where they they really peaked uh did you want just as a tag team or individual as well i
0: was gonna that was next i was gonna ask you individual then as well
1: yeah, I think everybody would resort to Tom with Tiger Mask, um, understandably. As I yeah. said, I've already mentioned the match with Fujinami. That was my favourite that I discovered during the research. Um, just as if you've just got seven minutes to spare, fire up Network and put on him against Tiger Mask at Madison Square Garden in 1982. It's there on Network. It, it, they've been given just this tiniest time slot. And I think... It's just so that Vince can see them and he well, so he can see uh Sayama, really. And obviously Tom was his main opponent. So they got them there. And the crowd, all the big guns are there at this 1982 show. Um and the crowd are almost treating this as the drinks break match, you know. They're they're all stood up, milling around, wondering who these guys are in the ring. After 30 seconds of the match, they're all stood watching thinking, what's this? After two minutes of the match, they've all got their hands on their head, gasping in amazement, and it's just a seven-minute masterclass uh, by them both. Uh, so, I, I think that, just as a short snippet, takes a beating that really does show uh, what they're capable of. Um, Tom also had some fantastic matches in Stampede with with Brett. Um, Davey, I, I didn't think going into this that I'd, uh, I'd see Davey have a better match than SummerSlam 92. Um I always thought that, that would be my de- favourite Davy match, but I think what I fell in love with about the, the when they did finally have the Brett Rematch uh, in your house season's beatings a few years later when Davy was a heel, um after doing so much research and studying about Stampede and the styles of wrestling and um the fact that they knew that the only way that they could um even get close, let alone try and beat what they'd done at SummerSlam 92 um, was to get some juice and do some things that they would do in Stampede, almost turn the clock back um, 10 to 15 years to the things that they were doing then Mm -hmm. Um, Blading was pretty much completely embargoed so they had to do it truly, truly uh, surreptitiously and Brett's an absolute master of that (laughs) And by the end of it, if you haven't seen it in a while, it's just there's just Clara everywhere.
0: Uh, I love that match so much. And, and
1: the, yeah, the, I, the <laughs> King King on commentary is absolutely. You can tell he's genuinely. He's not. He's not just doing sort of a fake sell for the for the audience. You can tell he's off his seat, screaming about how good it is. Uh, so yeah, I don't think anybody expected him to emulate what they'd done three years early and I think once I'd done the research and figured out what went into that match and the planning of that match and how they pulled it off that became my favourite Davis singles match then but as an honourable shout out I would just mention um, Canadian Stampede I think that is probably my favourite just for the audience I think that is probably my favourite wrestling match of all time you know obviously not because of particularly what was going off in the ring but The atmosphere was truly, Mm -hmm. truly electric uh, and that'll never be, I don't think that'd ever be seen again.
0: That is my favorite wrestling crowd of all time. We're actually going to be doing a whole episode just on that show for the 25th anniversary, which just happened, but we're going to be recording this is like our Patreon bonus, Top Rope Nation Classics. We do that every month. We pick an old show uh, that wins a vote amongst our patrons, and it's going to be Canadian Stampede. We're going to be recording that in about two weeks. I can't wait. Uh,
1: yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll listen with joy and watch along.
0: <laughs> I uh, I started smiling instantly when you went to the In Your House Seasons Beatings December '95 because we've brought this one up on the show a couple of times and debated it a little bit. Because I mean, I love the Summerslam match. I really like the In Your House match. I'm actually one of those people that thinks the in your house match is better than the SummerSlam match. Um, it's totally different matches. Like you said, different feel to it. I always kind of like these rematches that are, I guess like the hardcore fans, maybe like a little bit more. Like I'm the same way with Brett and Mr. Perfect love the SummerSlam 91 match, but I think their King of the ring. 93 the match ring, is actually gonna better. King, no, you're going to say yeah. King
1: of the ring. Then yeah, I probably agree. Yeah. I think what it is, I think, well, whilst the SummerSlam 92 match is absolutely amazing for what they accomplished. The, the, as a baby face on baby face match. I think what makes that so special is the, the old story regarding, you know, with the do a lot using Diana in the crowd mm. and the Wembley stadium and the, the true drama of it and the fireworks yeah. at the end. I think the, the mastery of that as storytelling is just superb. Uh, oh, yeah. and, I, and I think as a whole package, I think I probably would give it to that, but purely as a, as, as sort of 20 minutes of, um, of wrestling i think i'd probably go within your house
0: yeah that's what i'm saying too like as yeah as a whole package with wembley stadium i mean the larger than life presentation you could give the nod to summerslam but i think like between the ropes and outside the ring i mean god yeah that that in your house match in december 95 is excellent excellent stuff i i also really like i remember at the time even um like in davy and owen the european final because oh, that's magic yeah it, it just kind of felt like, I mean, I'd have to rewatch that era, but being pretty young, 13 at the time, it seemed to me like I didn't see Davy kind of flipping around so much anymore during that era like he had when he was younger. And in that match, man, his agility is crazy the way he moves oh, around my- in the ring.
1: Yeah, yeah, you do right to bring that one up. And I think, I think what makes it so good now is when you re-watch it because it was shot in Germany and mm-hmm. the, um, it, it wasn't shown live and the production levels are really low. Uh, so you, you feel like it's just going to be of almost house show quality performance, maybe, you know, where they're holding a little bit back. They absolutely majestic that night, both of them. And you can yeah. tell that they it, it's almost they incorporate all the different styles that they've learned over the years because Owen was such a student of, of the global uh, styles, spent a lot of time over here in the UK and Japan, and they both did, the they both followed that same pattern with the dungeon training too, and it's almost like the meta conscious decision that night to just incorporate everything and have this absolute stellar match that you, you just never... It feels like every roll-up's going to be the end of the match and mm-hmm. they just keep going and keep going and keep going. Uh, and yeah, that's... that's um, a five-star match in anybody's book well i think
0: yeah it it just felt like a real kind of roll the clock back kind of match for Davey. it's just excellent.
1: yeah well i think you see a lot of that if you go back and watch it against the likes of the malinkos for example you see Davey doing that all the time he'd got it absolutely yeah. mastered um uh he did it also despite being probably his biggest at the time he, he did a lot of that sort of stuff with regal uh, in the early 90s in wcw in 92 93 93 i think that rivalry was. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, he definitely had all that in his locker. He widely regarded. I think that's something that I kind of knew, but it really still ingrained it in me even more. I put him up another notch, uh, as I did more and more watching more and more research for the book, is just how, for a good 10 years, if he really wanted to Davey, he could do absolutely everything in that ring. And um, I think that's easily forgot about. I sometimes think that because the two people who he's so closely linked to uh, the Dynamite Kid and Brett the Hitman, I sometimes think that just how good and how talented he was kind of gets diminished a little bit because you know, he, he's, he's the two people who he's most closely compared to, uh, but that's that's grossly unfair as I say, I think I think for a good decade he was one of the top 5 or 10 performers out there
0: mm-hmm. Yeah Um. So i I put out there to our uh, Patreon supporters, if they had any questions for you, I'd try to get to a couple of them that I thought were good questions. And um Michael Jenkinson, friend of the show, he sent in this question. He wanted me to ask you if you thought that there was ever a time where it would have been justified or realistic for Davy to have been world champion, whether that be WWF or WCW.
1: Ah, uh, absolutely. I think it's I think it was just a twist of fate that it never was really. I think I think a few minor things went against him. Never that great. On the mic, I think would mm. be one thing that went against him. Um, I think it was a, it, it was pretty much between him and Brett who got the nod uh, in the post-Ogan when they wanted to move away from Ogan. Um and his failed drug test in uh after SummerSlam in '92, which led to him going to WCW. Um, who knows? I think is the answer there for what for what he could have done in WWF uh, going into nineteen ninety-three. In WCW, again, had a falling out with Eric Bischoff. I think it was on course there. I think he would have won the WCW title if it had stayed there, even just six or 12 months longer. You look at who wore, passing that belt around between them at the time. Vader, Sting, Sid, it were right in there with them. They mm-hmm. were in a sort of a four-way feud. I think it was just a matter of time before it wore his turn. Uh, I think that mid to late 90s run, while I think it's a lot of Davey's best work, Uh, back in WWF, I don't really think he was a realistic option then. I think it probably had just about passed him by then. Um, I know he was challenging a lot and he was everybody's perfect foil because he could get the best out of everybody. I think that's what they used him for then. Um, So yeah, I I think it had gone past him then. But yeah, I think he he can count himself very unlucky not to not to have had a world title run in either one or both. Mm -hmm. So,
0: the influence of Dynamite Kid, obviously, no secret. You've you've kind of been alluding to the fact that maybe from Davy's side, he was always being overshadowed by Dynamite, or even Brett, or some of the people he was surrounded by. Um, so, with Dynamite being one of the most influential junior heavyweights of all time, let alone as a tag team wrestler as well, let me ask you on the flip side: What do you think Davy's legacy is?
1: I think Davy's legacy. Almost transcends wrestling a little bit. He is an absolute pop culture icon here in the UK. Uh, he is known just in Dell, despite again from that fantastic run that, or runs plural that he had in the mid to late 90s. He, the, the, the dreadlocked Davy of the SummerSlam 92 sort of era, is a pop culture icon in the UK. I think he enabled. Pro wrestling to survive here in the UK almost single handedly uh, in that period through the Sky TV coverage. Um, and I think that that has led to the boom that we've got now. So many, so many global superstars from here in the UK. And I think a lot of them, you know, you like Serve, uh, Seamus, Drew McIntyre, Wade Barrett, have all at one point or another named Rob Davey as a, as a key influence in that. And I, I think that that says a lot for him.
0: Mm hmm. I think it's interesting, you know, I asked you a little bit ago how these two would have fit in in the modern scene and, you know, whether Tom would have been different if there wasn't the pressure on him to be so big, you know, in this era or whatever. I think Davey would have fit in so perfectly just personality wise, because you talk about in the book how you know beyond going to the bars and partying and stuff this was a guy in the early days of video games who loved to video game and it, that's one of those things you hear some of the old timers talk about now like undertaker famously always say oh, I, all these guys all they do is sit around playing video games now they you go you know it seems like he's pining for the old days davey would have loved to have been one of those guys today on the road just playing video games in his hotel room don't you think
1: i absolutely agree i think um I think that that's where the element of slightly being led astray, be it by Tom, I don't think you can just single Tom out on that. I think that it was mm-hmm. a culture at the yep. time that, that Davy got sort of led into that party culture. I think his maybe go-to was that with Owen. There's a, there's a really fantastic picture of him and Owen playing video games together, and they've just got these big beaming smiles. And their pranks that they got renowned for, uh, were just that little bit more light-hearted, like not as serious. They were all fun and joke. When you hear Mick Foley talk about Davy, it's that side of him. He doesn't talk about the, the party animal Davy or anything like that. And Mick Foley, as we know, were almost teetotal, pretty much teetotal, and he stayed away from all that partying, and, and he really loved Davy. So, yeah, I, I think I could see a little click forming there um, as that party culture were coming to an end with almost Mick and Owen and, and Davy and yeah i think i think i think you're absolutely right uh, it was ross that pointed that out to me just how uh, how much he loved that that side and he had this real playful side uh, to him and yeah i think you're absolutely right to point that out
0: yeah so i guess last question then for you i mean i feel like i could talk all day about old school yeah, wrestling with you it's been a great interview um do you see so where do you see the influence of the bulldogs maybe on any current tag teams in the wrestling business or where do you see their legacy as a team kind of living on today
1: i think the direct influence has possibly gone now but the indirect which is wider as it it sort of fans out like a tree effect almost is there in everybody it's just there in tag team wrestling across the world, I think, is what the Bulldogs and the Art Foundation in particular and that rivalry really set out. I think the direct influences on that era, the, the Attitude era era uh, of the Addies and Edge and Christian and the Dudleys and uh, a lot of what them guys were doing I think that's where you saw that that direct influence and in tag team wrestling really boomed and it, it sort of made me smile when I saw them three teams in particular having those unbelievable ladder matches and doing the same spots that, again, Dynamite and Brett had uh, set the blueprint for 20 years earlier uh, and you could really see a tangible Influence from the Bulldogs and also from the Stampede stuff. Uh, so yeah, I think there were an, an immediate swell of a direct influence for that era. But I think tag team wrestling got so big, so huge, almost the best match on the card. I think that's mm-hmm. what I think that's what the Bulldogs brought in before their time. Generally, tag team matches were either tour enhance programs or they were for. Uh, up-and-coming stars to cut the teeth, or they were for guys past the peaks on the downward st- uh, down of the career who were a bit lumbering now and a bit slower to rely on each other, have to do less work. Uh, uh, what the Bulldogs and the Act Foundation influenced at that time was the tag team match could possibly be the best match on the card. And then all of a sudden tag team matches were the genuine main events and matches. I think that's their lasting legacy. If I'm honest.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally agree. They were definitely at the forefront of yeah. Making like the workhorse tag team. Like you said, a lot of times it was guys put together who couldn't work a full match on their own and couldn't go anymore. They were older and, and now we can go out and we can all have a good match, be athletic the entire time. And we see right now kind of, I don't know. Rejuvenation kind of maybe on a national scene with AEW. You know, they have a really good tag team division. WWE mm. kinda they have some good tag teams, but they haven't focused that much on it in a number of years. Whereas AEW has a thriving tag team division. You see FTR you doing, doing great stuff across multiple companies right now. And I think that's yeah, a and point I think, well taken.
1: I think what WWE still now do is almost have gone back to using tag teams. Just for enhancement of mm-hmm. people or stories uh, or performers. Uh, but as you say AEW are more committed to an actual tag team division. Uh, yeah. And uh, it doesn't feel like, I think it feels with WWE and it's gone back a lot of years now that it's only a matter of time before, oh, they've had a falling out and now they're in a program with each other. Um, it got so predictable that that's just what they were going to do. Whereas it feels with um, a lot of other companies aw in particular that that tag teams are tag teams for a reason and they're going to stay that way
0: yeah absolutely
1: all right well Stephen,
0: uh, on your way out here what do you got on the horizon like tell the listeners first of all where they can find you where they can find the book and then any upcoming projects you have coming for us
1: yeah so the book is available worldwide now on whatever your, whatever your Amazon ends in, be it .com, .ca, .uk. Uh, the book is available there. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Bell 1985. Uh, I've got a dedicated page for the book, which has got an handle of uh, at Bulldogs Book 123. Uh, I use that quite regular for... Uh, updates on anything that's related to the book, pictures that didn't make the cut for whatever reason, or sort of anniversary of things, and snippets from the book, and exclusive. so if you want to give that a follow, you're more than welcome. Uh, and yeah, upcoming projects, I, I'm getting more and more sort of offers to write bits and pieces for wrestling magazines and stuff, which is really exciting, it's a it's an area that I'd love to move into, uh, there's so much and uh, Requirement, I think, for people to know more and more about that era and particularly the, the wig, what's known as the wig and style, and all that in Japan and how influential that was. So, that's something I'm doing more and more uh, digging deep on. So, hopefully, there might be a book project in that in the not too distant future. I've got a boxing project on the go as well, uh, which is also coming up to sort of a 30th year, 30th anniversary. I don't know if anybody remembers. Uh, it happened over in the UK, but it was a guy from the States. Gerald McClellan was tragically uh, injured in a fight with Nigel Ben. Nigel Ben was a working class hero of mine at the time. So that's another project I'm going to look to dig deep on and uh, see where that takes me. So yeah, sports books will be coming out more and more. And yeah, I'll be doing more and more wrestling work as well.
0: Very nice. Awesome. Well, this has been a great discussion. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and talk with our listeners about the book. As I said, Highly recommended. You can find a link to it here in the podcast or the YouTube video description. And thank you very much, Stephen, for for your time. This has been great.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Flew by that. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and thank you all for all the listeners for joining us. And we will be back next week with a brand new edition of the Top Rope Nation flagship here. Uh, Plus, by the time you're hearing this, or very soon, we'll have a new episode of Top Rope Nation Extra Up. Uh, That'll be a Kyle Ross exclusive show that he is doing. And then all of us will be together, Kyle, Justin, and myself, doing a new Top Rope Nation Classics on Canadian Stampede 97. As I said a little bit ago, that should drop in about two weeks. So Top Rope Nation Extra, Top Rope Nation Classics, as always, exclusive to our supporters on Patreon. Look for a new flagship on all the podcast feeds next Friday. So with all that being said, this has been episode 259 of Top Rope Nation. For Stephen Bell, I'm Ryan Drosty. We'll be talking to you again real soon. Take care.